Anybody here familiar with El Capitan? Anybody El Cap for short? Um, It's one of the most challenging rock climbing destinations in America. I've got a picture for you here up on the screen. They say that this this, this rock face is over 2,900 feet high at its highest peak. Let me just give you a visual of that. That's eight football fields high. Eight football fields high. There is no beginner rock climb to this wall. In fact, in just the last 50 years, El Cap has taken 33 lives. Back in 2010, a rock fall the size of 14 school buses came crashing to the ground without warning. They say the granite on this rock is so slick that most novice climbers couldn't even touch it. And those who are experts are left with these razor-sharp edges that cut into their fingers with blisters, bleeding. They take days off on the face of this rock just to recover. Sounds like a good time, doesn't it? The mountain was first named back in 1891. I've got another picture for you for how it outshined the rest of the park. That's why they called it El Cap. And for 77 years, it was considered impassable. 77 years, nearly everyone believed that a rock climb to the top of that mountain was a fool's errand. In 1958, though, a man named Warren Harding then set out to prove everyone wrong. I mean, you have to admire this guy's tenacity. Just listen to this. It took him 47 days of climbing and over 18 months to pull off the impossible. He would climb up, he would drill some pylons in, and then he'd climb back down. Then the next day he'd climb back up, drill even more in, and climb back down. But that was really just the beginning of the fame of this rock. Since then, the mountain has been this pillar for pushing human limits beyond what they could ever have even imagined. In 2018, the record was finally set when two guys named Alex Honnold and Tommy Caldwell ascended in just one hour and 58 seconds. Think about that. From 47 days to just under two hours. Talk about improving a sport. But the most incredible accomplishment, hands down, took place a few years ago when that same Alex became the first climber ever to ascend El Cap without a single rope. The guy climbed eight football fields high with nothing to catch his fall. If you haven't watched the documentary on this, it's called Free Solo. It'd be worth your time. But but it seems to me that you could kind of put humanity into two categories based on El Cap. Just go with me here for a minute. There are those who see the impossibilities of life and they're boxed in by the barriers. And then there are those who are stubborn enough to believe that despite the dead ends, there might be a way. You with me? There's those who see the risks as far too great and far too daunting ahead. And then there are those who are so focused on the possibilities that the logistics are just annoying details along the way. And I give us this image of the impossible wall because I want to unpack one of the greatest stories ever told in the history of our faith today. It's a story of a proverbial wall where faith and reality collide together. And I love this story because it brings this suspense, I think, that keeps us on the edge of our seat. In fact, as only God's word can do, this story is going to point us right back at our relationship with the Lord and our own walls. So we're going to turn to this this story this morning about what happens when God takes this impossible barrier and through the prayers of his people, he makes a way. If you have your Bibles open, I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 12. Acts 12, and we're going to do something really different today. 
Um, instead of reading our lesson all at once, we're just going to walk through this verse by verse together. Uh, because I don't want us to miss a single detail of this story. It's that good. Before we jump in, though, let me just back up for a second. Um, I want to I set this up. You remember last week we learned uh, what I would call about some minor setbacks in the early church. Peter and John had had their hands slapped. You might remember if you were here, the Sanhedrin, the local Jewish elite, had told them to quit sharing their faith or face the consequences. Uh, but this week, you're going to find that everything changes because now the most powerful man in the world is aiming directly, this time for James and Peter. And he's quite successful in doing so. So let's read this together. Chapter 12, we're going to read starting out at verses 1 through 3. So about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This isn't an opening scene for the faint of heart, right? And the entire story begins with a man violently encountering death. Did you catch that? And this, this isn't just any man. Um, this was the second apostle to lose his life in the book of Acts. The first was Stephen. Now it's James' turn. James falls with the sword for nothing less than following Christ. And the executioner was this, this king named King Herod Agrippa. He was the grandson to the same king who presided during Jesus' execution. He was a man who was deep embedded with insecurities. He had issues of self-worth and self-esteem. He was always trying to please the Jewish people in a radical way. So he thought to himself, you know, maybe I'll try a little experiment here. What if I killed one of the Christians? Maybe that would bring up the ratings and the polls a little bit. After all, from Herod's perspective, they were causing all kinds of issues for him. Public disturbances, people second-guessing the crucifixion of Jesus, riots in the streets. And Herod's intentions aren't really just to persecute the church or to slow them down. He set out to destroy the church. And he's making good on his plans. Like if you want to cut off the leaders of a, uh, cut off a movement, you would cut off its leaders, right? That's how Herod saw it. So first he tried James and the crowds roared. And now the most ranking official in all of Christianity is in custody. Peter was the one who Jesus said, you are Peter Petrus and on this rock I will build my church. So now at the word of Herod, Peter's life is dangling by a thread. Reminds me of the many stories of a man named Viktor Frankl. Anybody know who Viktor Frankl is? Viktor was a psychologist who lived through the Holocaust of World War II. And he wrote at length about hopelessness in the midst of impossibility. The man lost not only his mother, but also his wife while in camp. And he theorized that it's only when the men around him found meaning that they kept their will to survive. Frankel wrote this, look on your screens. He said, any attempt to restore a man's inner strength in camp had first to succeed in showing him some future goal. Hope is a curious subject, isn't it? How it, how it moves us, how it shapes us. You know, one of the reasons that I think so many have become with the, obsessed with these stories of places like El Cap is that all of us can relate to this seemingly impossible wall, can't we? 
It might not be like Peter's imprisonment or Victor's incarceration, but, but we all have stories where the road ahead seems impossible and maybe even unreasonable from time to time. Maybe it's the fight with your health that's going nowhere and you're wondering where we're gonna get to this next point. Things seem to be falling apart. Or maybe it's a relationship where the harder you try, the worse it gets. Maybe it's finances and you're barely getting by at a dead-end job with nothing left in sight. Or, or maybe it's just simply happiness. And for whatever reason, as you're staring at this wall, it seems like everybody's on the top cheering and you're left to the bottom. But whatever it is, we can all relate to that proverbial wall, right? Some sort of barrier where we wonder, how am I going to get through this? Go a little bit deeper with me. Look at this in verse three. It'll be up on the screens too. So this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when uh, King Herod had seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to the four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And here's the important part. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. It would make sense here that Herod would begin persecuting Christians at Passover, right? Remember, that was the same time period. It was Passover when Jesus had broken bread and poured the cup with his disciples. That was back when Agrippa's grandfather was in power. And now Peter's in this dire and desperate emergency. There's no chance of escaping reality here. It's, it's gone. This isn't prison. This is administrative segregation. Peter's guarded not by one, not by two, but four squads of four soldiers. That's 16 all in. 16 men watching him. Peter might as well have been the Unabomber. He's chained to a soldier on his left. He's chained to a soldier on his right, we're gonna find in a minute, and to make sure every door in the building is surrounded. There is no way over or around or under this wall. This last November, a woman by the name of Emily Harrington was attempting to uh, free climb the Golden Gate rap route of El Cat. Um, they say that of the 70 routes, Golden Gate is the second hardest to climb. And winter was coming and coming uh, rapidly. In fact, that morning, that morning, Emily was so determined to make it happen that despite this snowstorm on its way, she jumped on the wall anyway. About halfway up, she said she reached this handhold and this foothold, and as she started to pull herself up, her foot slipped and she fell. Now, the good news is she was secure and on belay. That means she was tethered to a rope. The bad news is, in an attempt to move faster, she had left huge gaps of slack in between her pitches. Her friends below heard this scream, and then they watched as the slack from the rope just dropped to their feet. Her friend grabbed her rope with his bare hands, tore his hands apart, but somehow stopped her fall. She slammed into the wall multiple times, banged up badly. They lowered her onto a ledge, and then they did the only thing that they could do, and they called search and rescue and waited and waited. The authorities said the only thing keeping her alive that morning were the heroic efforts of her friends. It puts a spit in your stomach, right, when the odds are against you, doesn't it? Go back with me for a minute to that picture of Peter curled up in prison. He's sleeping it off. The odds are stacked against him. It's just a matter of time. He's, he's settling into his own defeat, beaten and 
shackled, except, except instead of waiting for search and rescue, Peter's waiting for the executioner. The only thing keeping him from the sword was a festival. Herod had made plans to wait until the end. That way he wouldn't step on any Jewish religious taboos and all the people could cheer as kind of the crescendo, the final part of the event. But here's the part I want us to focus on. Let's just take a deep breath for a minute. Because despite all of that, despite all of the odds, despite the despair, despite the tragedy, Peter's friends are still on their knees earnestly coming to God in prayer. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That word earnestly uh, in Greek, it's ektenos. It means to pray with intensity and perseverance. This is the same prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. Look at this in Luke twenty-two forty-four. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, ektenos. There is literally nothing to do in this moment for God's people but to pray. The church can't buy Peter out of prison. Herod's way too, more, way too powerful for that. They can't sneak him out of prison. There, there's no way, there's way too many guards on hand. And so with nothing left, they fall to their knees and earnestly give the situation to God. I've told many of you my story before, but I'll summarize it again just because I want you to know about the wall in my life. Shortly after I was born, my twin brother and I came down with RSV pneumonia back in the day. That was a death sentence. In the middle of the night, in this blizzard, I turned purple. They had no choice but to flight for life us from Gillette, Wyoming, in that moment to Denver, Colorado. We were the last ones out. And even on the plane, chances were not good. It's a miracle that we even made it to Denver Children's. And as the doctors and the nurses scrambled and there's these machines setting off alarms, my parents found the chapel. That's the only place they could go. And they did the only thing left to do and they prayed. I'm convinced it's not only why I'm here today, but it's why I'm in this pulpit. I think sometimes God allows ourselves to go through something so desperate that by his grace we're left with nothing else but to cling to him earnestly in prayer. That that come life or death, we realize there's really only one thing left now and that's to trust in him. That somehow whatever the outcome, we've now got to know he's with us. Watch how this plays out. Let's go back to Acts 12, 6 and keep reading. So now when Herod was about to bring Peter out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in his cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hand and the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord, and they went out and went along the street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. 
Well, this is by far my favorite part of the entire story. Not because Peter gets released from prison, but because he's sleeping so heavily, a divine messenger kicks him in the ribs. Anybody catch that part? Isn't that cool? Anyone with a teenager, this part is for you. Um, But despite the blinding light of God's messenger, right, Peter's passed out. And we don't know why. Is he exhausted? Maybe. Has he made his peace with God and given up and sleeping? I don't know. But the angel winds up and strikes him right in the side because it's go time. And as he stumbles out of his slumber, he finds every barrier of hope gone. The chains fell off. Shackles removed. They walked right by the first guards, no problem. Walked right past the second guards, nobody stopped them. The iron gate to the city opens itself and Peter walks free. And we read this story, I think, and the skeptic in us goes, come on, really? I mean, how in the world does that happen? Two guards are chained to Peter and he's walking out a free man. I mean, of all the escape attempts we've heard from prison, this one defies the odds, this defies physics. Let me just speak to that skeptic for a minute because here's the best part. Um, Peter would have agreed with you. Even Peter, as he was living it out and following this angel in real time, he believed this was just some vision. There's no way this could be real. That was going on in his mind. It says, he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. That's a miracle. God's breaking down walls, though, and all Peter sees is a dream. I'm reminded of a tiny little church that had been all but left behind out in the country. Uh, Paint falling off the sides of the building, broken windows, lost dream. The, The people had moved out. The critters had moved in. The church had all but closed its doors. And then this small group of people started praying. Anybody know what happened to that little church? You're sitting in it. That was legacy less than a century ago. When it comes to this proverbial wall, I think whatever it is, we all have this story in our lives of a barrier that we have to overcome. Some of us have been staring at this wall for a long time now. Maybe someone's sitting right next to you this morning. And for whatever reason, we're stuck. We've, we've ran out of options. We've tried everything humanly possible. And maybe it's high time someone prayed for us. I mean, who do you know in your life who is completely without hope and strength? Who do you know that's facing a rough time and you know it, you've known it for some time now? Have you prayed with them? And let me just address the million dollar question because I think we live in a day and age that scoffs at prayer. Why? Here's the question that I think people might ask. Why did James lose his life and Peter went free? What's that about? I mean, I don't know about you, but if I would have just lost my friend, I'm not sure I'd be in a praying mood. I'd probably be in a grieving mood. I'd be in a grumpy mood, angry. And we'll never really fully understand, but here's the answer. On this side of eternity, we really don't know why some of our prayers move God's hand And others of our prayers 